You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. This is Father Mark Poulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. For as long as I can remember, Father Paul has been critical of Hellenism. And what I learned as a student over time is that Father Paul was not being critical of Hellenism. He was explaining to us the biblical critique of Hellenism. And so when I was listening to the rise of scripture and Father Paul was talking about the Persian Empire as beneficent as opposed to the Greeks, again, there's this temptation to think, oh, Father Paul is giving his opinion of history. But in fact, when a biblical scholar, specifically Father Paul, is making a case about the Persian Empire or about Hellenism, he's always referring to a text. And I want to keep stressing this because we live in a culture where people just talk But when you're serious about biblical wisdom, you never just talk. You have to have a reference. So, Father Paul, we're excited to have you, and we're interested to hear more about this topic, contrasting within the biblical context, the Persian Empire and the Hellenistic Empire. Yes. Let me begin from another angle that I developed in my audio and in my book, and I took time to do that. This main point, assuming my thesis that the writers were people from the area of Mesopotamia and, you know, to get themselves out of the boot that Alexander of Macedon brought with him, they produced a massive literature where they belittled themselves, their colleagues, with the Greeks. You know, you can get out of that. It's classic in the Bible that you have a criticism of the nations, of the Assyrians, of the Babylonians. But the real critique is of the kings and people of Israel and Judah. Now, I said in conjunction with that, that unlike the mentality that is prevailing nowadays, especially with nations and nationalisms and ethnicities, the biblical approach is different. It's sociopolitical and thus geographical, meaning that a neighbor is a neighbor. He is much closer than someone coming from abroad, even if the one coming from abroad is from the same ethnicity. So the mentality is much more practical. Now, this did not happen theoretically. I stressed so many times that the biblical approach is not utopic. There is no utopia. The authors experience something special. And that's the point I would like to make here, that for millennia, their ancestors and then they themselves were living in an area where there was a perfect symbiosis between the Sumerian culture and civilization and the Sumerians were clearly Indo-Aryans, like the Greeks and the Romans. So between the Sumerians and the Akkadians that produced the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And the Akkadians used the language of Sumer. They had technically two languages. They didn't have any problem. Later we see how the Persians used the Aramaic language, which is Semitic. So we are in a situation that reflects a non-adversity on the basis of ethne. It's neighborliness that was 
very important. And that is reflected in the fact that when the Persians liberated the oppressed people of that area from the Babylonians, again, the Persians, the Medo-Persians are Indo-Aryans, they liberated the people of the area who were Semites from their Semite oppressors, the Babylonians. They were welcomed. And I have here a text which is extremely impressive at the end of 44 in Isaiah and the beginning of 45, where God presents himself as the God of everyone, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. It's very impressive that we have Cyrus, who is mentioned by name at the end of 44 and as you will hear in a couple of seconds at the beginning of 45. Let me immediately read it. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and ungird the loins of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the mountains. It's very impressive that Cyrus is presented as the chosen one of God in terms that are specific to the chosen kings of Israel and Judah. We hear that he is a shepherd, that he is anointed, that God holds his right hand. It's unbelievable. And in verse 3, we have, who call you by your name. Now, when one combines this 1-3, I call you by your name, and earlier in 44-28, He is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. One cannot not think of the servant of Isaiah who is called by name and who is sent for a certain purpose. To the extent that many scholars consider that the servant of God in those other texts in Isaiah is Cyrus. Remember, we are reading 44 and 45. The other texts are found in 42, 49, 50, and 53. Now, obviously, I do not agree with them, but that's not the point. The point is that the text is very compelling. Now, when one reads this, considering that the Persians are Indo-Aryans, and then one compare this with the negative attitude towards the Greeks, then my conclusion sounds tenable. So the problem with the Greeks is that they came from far away and they wanted to establish themselves in that area. Recall that Alexander made of Babylon, which is the Semitic capital of Mesopotamia, his capital. He wanted to make it Greek. And then I mentioned this in my book that, you know, the followers of Alexander are the Seleucids who were ruling greater Syria. So this is very striking. That's all I'm saying. So before I get to my conclusion, I would like to remind my hearers that in Jeremiah chapter 27 and 28, we have a reference to Nebuchadnezzar as being the servant of the Lord. I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. 
and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve. So I'm bringing in this text to show that the writers do not have a preference as to whether one is Semite or not. They give preference to someone who is from the area because usually you have to protect yourself in the area with whatever people you are living with. And that aspect of anti-ethnicity, if you would like, is very important in the Bible. Later, we shall see that under the Seleucids, the leaders of the followers of the Torah in Jerusalem and Judah committed that mistake by underscoring circumcision and their ethnicity against the non-circumcised Greeks. <laughs> now, this is non acceptable for the Pauline school because circumcision is not mentioned after Joshua except twice in Jeremiah under a negative aspect. It's not an issue. The issue is whether one follows the law or not. And I refer my readers to Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. And then 1 Corinthians where neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail but keeping the commandments of God. So if one does God's will, and we see here Cyrus that he is doing God's will, then it's fine. It has nothing to do with being Greek or non-Greek. So one more time, the Greeks were people who came from outside and wanted to impose their will on the people of the area. And just to take an aside, later the Hasmoneas, the heirs of the Maccabees, fell into this trap by appealing to the Romans against the Seleucids, and then the Romans took over their city and assigned an Idumean king, Herod. They belittled the Hasmoneans. So the Bible is always there to remind us that you cannot put your hope in an outsider and one more time the outsider has nothing to do with ethne through a sign that shows that you are of a certain kind it's like today you know people are very excited about dna and finding their birth mother to meet her and so i mean uh, your parents are the people who raised you what do you mean birth mother at the time when there was no dna that was not a problem <laughs> it's the one that rears you. And let me end here with the beginning of Isaiah, a very impressive text. At the beginning, he complains about Israel and the people of Judah because they were not his children, because he reared them. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Sons I have reared and brought up. He doesn't say I have given birth to, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner. Notice the examples. It has to do with an animal and his owner. And they ask its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people does not understand. And understanding and knowing meaning the law of God. Very impressive two verses. Isaiah 1, 2, and 3. So we see here, whether it's an animal or a person or a sheep, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you have to be faithful to the one that reared you and still protects you. And if that one decides to choose Cyrus, then that one decides to choose Cyrus. The text regarding Nebuchadnezzar is impressive in another way, where he says, do not fight him. 
because I am holding his hand to crush all the nations about Nebuchadnezzar. And that is very harsh for a person coming from the perspective that, no, no, I am the chosen one, I am the circumcised, I am the baptized, and thus God is with me, and he has no choice but to be with me the way I view it. And that would be the lesson, according to me, that is to be taken. Thank you very much, Father, in helping us understand the function that Cyrus, as a Persian, fills in this text. How should we understand this with respect to how the Persians are depicted in Ezra Nehemiah, as in those who are really helpful, allowed us to rebuild our temple, allowed us to go back to our land? How should we understand the Persians in that context? Yes, because it was their policy. Now you're asking a question that goes into the historical background. So it's not in the, how shall I put it, uh, just like this for free. As I said, definitely scripture is not a utopia. The readers were not utopic. They started with the situation, I call it, on the ground. The Persians had this policy, obviously, for their own purpose. They gave a little bit more freedom to the people by assigning governors over the different provinces and so on. But obviously, the governors had to answer to the Persian emperor. But this policy of letting the peoples handle their own matters within their own provinces is precisely that expression, not that the Persians came with, but was there for millennia. I mentioned the Sumerians and the Akkadians. You rule areas, and in those areas, indirectly, you rule the peoples. And if you find that a way of ruling would be to give them a certain freedom and have them even assigned a governor of their own kind. You know these stories in Ezra and Nehemiah about the, the governors of Judea and Samaria and so on. That was a policy that the writers were aware of. They wrote around 100, 150 years after that. And they just took it into consideration. So your question actually is important because it helps me to stress my point that nothing is utopic. You begin with this. But then on the other hand, you have in the book of Esther a critique of the Persians when they start oppressing and so on. So in scripture, God is not with or against anyone per se. It has to do with the behavior of someone. And also, you noticed how I integrated the historical background. Later, the Pauline school did not treat the Romans in the same way as Scripture treated the Greeks. The Romans were looked upon positively. The emperor was looked upon negatively. But the Romans with the households, I mean, remember that the apostle to the nations is presented in the Bible as not only a Jew, but a Roman citizen which is amazing. But again, I don't want to go into that topic. We can discuss it another time. But all this helps me to stress that fact that it's very hard for people to comprehend nowadays because they're all built on ethnicities. And in the Bible, everybody is ultimately Adamic. There are no ethnicities. <laughs> the nations are nations together. 
remember in the Bible how the three sons of Noah have their Toledot together. But again, I'm just throwing examples that would perhaps invite you to revisit another time, but so that my hearers would hear, see, which means comprehend fully through hearing, that it's something that is all over the place in Scripture. It is constructed on this premise. It's not just an aside that God liked Cyrus. No, there is a reason. It's interesting, Father Paul, because it makes it so clear when you describe this as being all over the place and the premise on which Scripture is built. It makes it clear that what St. Paul is writing in the New Testament is not a novelty. He's just taking this message and driving it home. And what's interesting is that he's turning the message on Jerusalem, the way you described at the beginning of your answer, and he's challenging them to accept the teaching of God, that they're no different than the nations. Now, that's a very, very important point, because uh, otherwise, how did he look at the Roman Empire that technically from the outside just took the place of the Greek Empire, and yet he saw something very positive, which, in my mind, is the household that was practically a clan, a tribe, like shepherd culture. It's very important. Yes, it is very important that one knows the socio-political historical background. The text was not written in the void. It's not platonic dialogues or the writings of Confucius, the Hindus. It has to do with eternal universal wisdom. You don't have that. And even the people who mention that in the Ketubim there is a reference to wisdom, very obviously the wisdom is presented as being found, the true wisdom, in the Torah itself. There is no just like wisdom. And let me go back to these two verses at the beginning of Isaiah. Sons have I reared and brought up. He didn't have a school, he had a family. And he read them, he taught them, and... That is through wisdom. That's why in Genesis, Adam is not allowed to use the accepted human universal wisdom that it is up to us to figure out the difference between the good and the evil. Scripture says, no way. <laughs> it is what God says is good or evil, period. And when Adam made the mistake... God did not allow him to continue eating from the tree of life. In other words, he punished him. As simple as that. And unless the hearers put really the effort to keep listening to the Bible and getting to know it, not via other books, that somehow, not all of them, but a good number hopefully will capture what Scripture is saying and why it is saying it. Father, it's unfortunate that we have to have our conversation in English because in reflecting on your statement that we are all Adamic, when we translate Adamic into Hebrew, it's Adami, which can also mean earthly. And if we only could speak in Hebrew, we could understand that not only are we all of Adam, but we are all of the earth as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, point beyond well taken. It's of the essence. I mean, just an aside, you know, an Arab would even give you another example. I'm not saying that it fits in Arabic, but in the Arabic language, in Arabic society, we use the word Adami, Adamic, 
to mean a person who is good, nice, correct, one who is the way one is supposed to be. That's very impressive, according to me. It shows me that they captured the meaning of that. In my terminology, as Father Mark would say, but let me say it before he uses my words, that it is the way that the people capture the meaning, and that would be, and you hear it all over my audios, there are normal people, not super normal, not very, very, very good, not excellent. That's not normal. And that's what Adami means. I'm sure you have people around you who know Arabic. Just ask them, what is Adami in Arabic? You are like any other human being from the earth and back to dust. It's unfortunate that they translate son of Adam as son of man. And I always appreciated the Narnia series because C.S. Lewis was faithful to the language. And he referred to characters, the human beings, as the son of Adam. In translation, this important connection Richard brought up is lost because son of man in English, you start thinking, who is it? They miss the point. In the Moroccan dialect of Arabic, if you want to say, oh, I saw someone, just a generic person, benedim, which means ibn Adam, which means son of Adam. That's colloquial yeah, yeah. Arabic this and Moroccan. This is all over in Arabic. If you are a woman, you are a daughter of Eve. If you are a man, you are a son of Adam. I mean, it's in the mentality. And that's why original words are important. And if one keeps them, then one is forcing the reader or the hearer to ask, so what does it mean? Okay, fellows, we have a lot to do. Father Paul, thank you so much thank you very for much, uh, this morning's discussion. Thank you. Always clarifying, always challenging, and hopefully our listeners will spend some time to work through these ideas as we continue these Tuesday talks and continue to work through the Bible on the Thursday program with the tools that we glean from these discussions. I want you to know that after the podcast, when people ask me, how old are you? I say, I'm 73. And then they ask me, how old do you feel today? I say, 63. I have to thank you for that. Once a week, once a week. Thank you very much, Father. Okay, love you much. Take care. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.